Second Corinthians chapter number eight. And I'd like to begin reading at verse number one. We're just going to be preaching from one verse this morning, but I feel it would give us some context that would help us. Paul writing to the church at Corinth, the Bible says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. Now, notice verse 9 very carefully. The Bible says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Let's read it again. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just ask that you glorify your Son in our midst today. Help us to see Jesus and to see Him high and lifted up, to see Him holy, Lord. I pray that Your train would fill Your temple. God, that Your glory would abound this morning. Lord, I pray that each heart would be touched in a real way and in a relevant way and in a radical way. God, that You'd change us for Your glory and honor this morning. We don't just seek to be challenged, but we seek to be changed. Because we know, Lord, that we're not everything we ought to be. Not everything we're going to be, Lord, but I want to thank You we're not what we used to be. Help us, Lord, now to be what You'd have us to be, according and by Your Spirit. Lord, if there's one amongst us that's lost this morning, if they're lost, they're undone. And if they're lost and undone, it's because they're without Christ. And I pray You'd convict them. Show them their need of Calvary this morning, Lord. Father, we love You. Thank You for loving us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, as a preacher, I listen to a lot of sermons, and of course, I preach a few myself. And I've preached a lot about the grace of God, and I've heard a lot of preaching about the grace of God. And I've heard preachers say many times that the grace of God is something that just cannot be defined or described. And I know what they mean by that. I understand that we can never exhaust the grace of God. I understand that we can never sound the depths of the love of Christ or what He's done for us. I understand that it'll take all of eternity and more to be able to sing the praises that's worthy of His name. I understand what they mean by that. But as I read through the Word of God this week and I came across this verse, a verse that I know I've read many times, it struck me the simplicity of what's being said here. Because the word grace, as it's used in the Word of God, sometimes uh, becomes a, a very abstract thought to us. You know, it's a word that's used all the time. And I can't remember, I checked, but I can't remember how many times the word grace is used in the Word of God, hundreds of times. 
And sometimes I think we like to take grace and make it mean something for us that it doesn't mean in the Word of God. And sometimes we like to say, well, that means something to me different than what it means to you. Well, uh, it may have a different impact for one that it does another, but understand that the Word of God means what it means. The, uh, the Bible says that the prophecy of the Scripture, that none of it is of any private interpretation. The, the fact of the matter is, grace means something. Grace has a definition. And as I read this, you know, there's many different descriptions of, of grace that are given. And one of them that most people like is grace is uh, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's an acronym that's given. And I believe that does convey the thought that we see in this passage. But as I read this, I, I just want to preach to you for a few moments on what I see in this passage. Because I see the topic of grace defined. How would we define God's grace towards us? And I think in this passage, we have it defined. Notice what it says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God is getting ready to describe this grace to us. And I see three basic truths that this verse is divided into. And I want you to share them with me. Notice first off the splendor of His goodness and of His riches and of His grace. Notice the phrase that is used here. It says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich. Now we could pause right there and we will and talk about the richness of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think sometimes it's hard for us to fathom just exactly uh, all the riches and glory that Jesus Christ has and has always had. You know, we were talking last night about heaven. We were sitting around with the family there and talking. uh, You know, we were talking about what heaven must be like. And uh, You know, the Bible says that I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared uh, for them that love Him. You know, the fact of the matter is, we can't even wrap our minds around the splendor of heaven. I mean, we can try, and and anything we know of it, we know from the Word of God. Any idea, you know, by the way, this whole idea of of St. Peter sitting at the gates and deciding who gets in and who don't, you know, that's not even scriptural, even in the inkling. You know know that that, uh, St. Peter, and by the way, you know why he was a saint? He wasn't a saint because people said he was a saint. He wasn't a saint because he did anything to be saintly. He was a saint because he had been sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ, just like you, just like me. And Peter is no gatekeeper of heaven. I understand that uh, the Bible talks about the keys uh, of death and hell being committed into the Lord Jesus Christ and the keys to the church being committed to Peter. Uh, But you know that that's not what that's saying there. Uh, Christ says, Peter, thou art Peter. That, That means little rock. And he says, upon this rock. And that's a different word for rock. That's the word uh, petros. That, that means big rock. So Peter saying, the Lord saying to Peter, Peter, you're a little rock. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with being a little rock. But this church is built upon the rock. That's what he's saying. And so the idea of St. Peter gathered, you know, there at the gates of heaven, deciding who gets in, who's not, and listening, you know, uh, all he meets up there is doctors and lawyers, according to the jokes. I mean, that's the only people he ever, and he don't ever let the lawyers in, does he? You know, that's foolishness. That's not what the Bible teaches. And the truth of the matter is, it would be hard for us to even fathom the things that heaven contains. And I think sometimes as we think about all that heaven is, we like to think about it and think about the fact that that's where we're going. But could I say to you today that if we're going to understand grace, we have to look at all those riches and think that that's the place that Jesus left for you and I. Through His riches. Well, what kind of riches? Well, you know, and I I went through the Bible and and tried to look at a few verses, and I just want to read uh, a few verses out of Psalms 50 to you that I hope will convey 
the riches of Jesus Christ. Listen to what the Bible says. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. That's prophetically speaking of our Lord and Savior. Do you know the Bible speaks that the earth and the fullness thereof belongs to the Lord? Do you understand that the things we value so much on this earth just don't mean a thing in heaven because there's so many of them? Uh, some of you are wearing just like I am right now, wearing a gold wedding band. And that wedding band costs a lot more than, let's say, a, a copper wedding band. Well, maybe not nowadays. A lot more than an iron wedding band. A lot more gold is a valuable thing to us. You know gold doesn't mean a thing to God. They pave the streets with it. Isn't that right? I mean, that's Bible. That, that's Bible. I understand that's a street uh, that runs through the center of the New Jerusalem. I understand that's not the heavenly street. I understand that's a street that runs through uh, the heart of the New Jerusalem. But it still don't change the fact that God is not in need of our money. God's got enough money. You know why God's interested in our money? Because He knows that's how He has to get to us. He knows that most of us, if you used to open that little door that sits upon our heart, you find a dollar bill inside of it. And He says, that's where I belong. And He's trying to get to us, and He has to do it in that way. His riches are inexhaustible. But I see not only the splendor of His riches, I think about the splendor of His reverence. You know, we think about heaven being about streets of gold and pearly gates, and we think about a river of life, and we think about the tree of life. with fruit. Do you know what heaven's about? Do you know what it's always been about? Heaven is about the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It is today. It always will be. Uh, there's, and listen, I'm going to make some of you mad when I say this, but if you want to disagree with me, that's, that's fine. I, I may be wrong, friend, but you know, I hear people and, and they, they think that heaven is kind of like a big fishbowl and everybody's standing around look, looking, looking down on us. And I, I don't know about you, but if I had a choice, if I could either look at the pierced feet of the Son of God or look at this mess down here, I know what I would choose. But you look in the book of Revelation, it's not about what's going on down here. That's not what they're looking at in heaven right now. In heaven, they're not... And listen, that doesn't mean they're not aware. Maybe they're aware, maybe they're not. And if it makes you feel better that, that uh, grandma or papa or mom or daddy's looking down on you, more power to you. I don't think it's going to hurt you to believe that way. But I believe in the Bible that when we see in book of Revelation, chapter number 5, what are they doing in heaven? They're not standing around looking down on us. They're gathered around the throne looking at Him. That's what they're doing. I mean, heaven was a place where Christ had all the glory. That's what I'm trying to say. And listen, this is all going to click here in a second. I know some of you are looking at me and saying, I don't even know what he's preaching yet. Well, you'll get it. I mean, heaven was a place where the name of Jesus was revered. Heaven's a place with a throne. Heaven is a place with a crown. Heaven's a place with a scepter. And they all belong to Jesus Christ. It was a place of great reverence. It was a place where the angels sang out His blessed name. It was a place where those that had died in the Lord sang out His blessed name. You know what He said in John chapter number 17? When He's praying to His heavenly Father, He says, Glorify me with the glory that we had before the world was. Do you realize that before time was ever even created, Christ was on His throne receiving glory, receiving honor. Heaven is all about Him. It was a place of His splendid reverence. But I think not only about the riches of His riches. That's good alliteration, isn't it, Brother Ralph? The riches of His riches and the riches of His reverence. But I think about the splendor and riches of His righteousness. Do you understand? And I'm talking about grace this morning. I'm talking about what all is involved with grace. His riches, His glory or reverence, but also His righteousness. Do you know that Jesus Christ is the only and, and will ever only be the one person born that was not born a sinner. Amen. Only one. First John chapter 3 tells us that in Him was no sin. 
First uh, Peter says that he knew no sin. The Word of God says he did no sin. Do you realize that Jesus Christ was so... And I'm preaching ahead of myself, but I'm going to get to it here in a second. Do you realize Jesus Christ was so righteous that He could bear the sins of the entire world and atone for them? I mean, that's righteous. We think we're righteous, but we don't even have a clue what righteousness is. I mean, Jesus Christ... Listen, the righteousness of Christ was the expression of the holiness of God. When God said, I want to show you what I think is holy, He sent us His Son. He's the expression of the holiness of God. We see His splendor. But I see in this passage not only His splendor, I see His sacrifice. For we know, ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, read it again with me in verse 9, though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor. Now we're talking about grace this morning. And you can't understand, listen, you can't understand how, how, how low he went until you understand how high he was. And you can't understand how high he takes us until you understand how low he was. We see his splendor, but what did he do that though he was rich? And by the way, this blessed me when I thought about this. Do you realize that all of the things that Christ had did not deter him from Calvary? You want to define the love of God? You want to understand the love of God? Consider all that Christ had. And though he was rich, though he had all the, though he was in a place where he was reverenced, listen to me. There's nobody taking the Lord's name in vain up in heaven. There's there's nobody cursing Jesus Christ up in heaven. Though he was at a place where it was all about him, where he had all the glory, where he had all the riches, where his righteousness was on display. Though he was rich, yet became he poor. We see his sacrifice. And I, I see that he went from a place of being rich till we see his condescension. Think about him leaving the ivory palaces of glory to be born in a manger for you and I. Think about, you know, the book of Matthew, chapter number 8 says, that the foxes have their holes, and the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. I, it's funny to me the, the prosperity preaching of the day. And I'll tell you why I couldn't be a prosperity preacher. I'm not good looking enough. I don't have the right teeth. I don't, my hair's a mess. I, I mean, they, they want, they'd look at me and they can tell, they'd, we can tell you're poor. Amen. <laughs> it wasn't me. I couldn't even try. But we see this prosperity preaching today that tells you if you're poor, it's because you don't have faith. That is as straight out of hell. I, I mean, try to find even a, a scrap of Bible upon that. I understand God provides for His children. I understand He gives us stuff not only that we need, but things that we want. But why would we think that our Lord that left the riches of glory and lived the life of a pauper, of a carpenter, that walked this earth, He died in a borrowed tomb. He was born in a borrowed manger. He died upon a borrowed cross. Why would we think that we would live this world and be full of riches by following Him? No, He... He wasn't full of riches. He left glory. We see his condescension. But we see on the one hand that he was at a place of reverence. But then we see not only his condescension, we see his contempt. He, he went from a place where it was all about him to a place where men hated and despised him. You know, the Bible says in John chapter number 1, the Bible says uh, that the world was made by him and the world knew him not. And you say, well, that's just the world. What about his folks? Well, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. 
You know what Christ said in the book of John, chapter number seven? He says that the world says the world hateth me, hateth me. We've never lived in a day, I don't believe, when the name of Jesus is as disrespected as it is today. I mean, we listen, we live in a day when people will take God's name in vain, treating it like it's like they're using the word the or and. You know, the Bible says that the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. I still think it's a sin to take the Lord's name in vain. And you say, well, I, I, the people said it when I was growing up. Well, they was wrong then. Say, well, my mom always said it. I picked it up from her. Well, it was wrong when she did it. You say, well, my daddy used it. Well, it was wrong when he did it. It's still wrong to take the Lord's name in vain. But he went from a place where his name was never taken in vain. And he came to a place where it's cursed continually. He went from a place where he was loved and adored. and came to a place where he was loathed and abhorred. He went from a place where it was all about him to a place where when... When they got to know who he was, they nailed him to a cross. We see that he left the reverence and went to contempt. But we see not only uh, his righteousness, but we see his crucifixion. We see his condescension. He left the riches of glory. We see his contempt and came to a place where his name is hated. But we see finally his crucifixion. You know the book of Second Corinthians chapter 5, you know what it tells us? Here we have the righteousness of Christ, Brother Ralph, on one hand. There he is, spotless, sinless. The very express image of the glory and holiness of God. Uh, the, the very definition of God's standard. You know, that's what the law was. The law was God's standard. And you know that Christ said, I am come to fulfill the law. We think of Jesus as being very radical in his day. And in a sense, he much was, very much was. But understand that Jesus was the perfect Jew. He never broke a single commandment. He kept the law in its entirety. When God said, this is my standard, you can't live up to it. He said, but I'm going to send my son that can live up to it. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Do you understand the exchange that took place on Calvary that day? Do you understand that literally the sinless one became our sin? We're talking about grace this morning. He became our sin. He didn't just bear it. He became it. Do you understand that every lie that you ever told, Jesus became that on Calvary? Every lustful thought you've ever had, Jesus became that on Calvary. Every hateful thought or hateful word that you've ever had, Jesus became... Hey, listen, that ought to make us hate sin this morning. That ought to make us hate sin. Not the sinner, but hate sin. It ought to make us hate our own sin. To think when we do wrong, that's the very thing that put Him on the cross. That's the very thing that He became. He didn't just bear it, He became it. His righteousness was corrupted by our sin. But it was strong enough, powerful enough, righteous enough <laughs> that He bore it all and by His blood was able to wash us clean. Stop and think about it for a minute. He became it that we might become something different. I, I don't know if I'm above everybody or below everybody right now. But we're not on, somewhere we're missing. He became it so we could become something different. He became our sin. He allowed it to be placed upon Him and He was judged for it. 
He literally bore our punishment that we might not have to bear it. That's grace. That's grace. So we see Jesus high and lofty. We see Him low and bearing our sin. But we see a third thing here. Notice not only His splendor and not only His sacrifice, but notice His substitution. Yet became He poor, that through His poverty we might be rich. See, that's the beauty of it. Jesus was not a martyr. Jesus was a Savior. There's a difference. You see, a martyr is someone that dies for cause. Jesus didn't die for cause. Jesus died for sinners. A a, a martyr accomplishes nothing by their death, except possibly the inspiration of that cause. But their death in and of itself does not achieve anything. But the death of Jesus Christ on Calvary forgave and paid for the sins of all mankind. Not a martyr, a Savior. And we see, I thought about three words. You see, first we see His riches. And then we see His condescension. And what does that produce for us? You know, the book of Romans tells us in chapter number 8, I'm going to read it. I don't want to misquote it. It's too good. It's all too good to misquote, by the way. But, but this just blesses me, so I'm going to read it. Listen to what it says in the book of Romans, in chapter number 8, verse 16. It says, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit, that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, listen now, and joint heirs with Christ. You understand that everything Jesus has, you have. You understand that all the riches that He has, you have access to. Now you say, oh preacher, now you're sounding like the prosperity. No, I'm not talking about prosperity. I'm not saying that we can grab hold of all of it. I'm not saying we can have it all at our whim. I'm saying this, it doesn't matter what we're facing, Jesus has enough to take care of. Uh, Miss uh, Jean said something yesterday. She's talking about Jesus, and I've never heard this before, but this stuck with me. This is just country, and I love the way she said, if you got Jesus, you got more than you got a battlefield for. Stop let that soak in. If you've got Jesus, you got more than you've got a battlefield for. If you've got Jesus, listen, you've got listen, if you've got Jesus, you've got more than, than you could have debt of. If you have Jesus, you've got, you've got someone bigger than the biggest of your problems. If you've got Jesus, you've got someone richer than the deepest of your debt. If you've got Jesus, you've got someone that is greater and more righteous than the darkest of your sins. I'm saying that everything Jesus has, we have because we become joint heirs through His grace. We have access. We have His goodness, His grace, His blessings, His bestowal. We see that we are joint heirs. And I thought about another word. I think about the idea of reverence and glory. And I think about what He bore for our sins. And all the disrespect and disdain and hatred and the contempt that He bore. And you know what the word that popped into my mind? This word, joy. Because He bore those things, we can have joy. Joy. You could put the word glory there. It would be just as fitting. But you know what Christ said to His disciples in the book of John chapter 16? It's the night before He's going to be crucified. And He's talking to His disciples and He says, Yet a little while and I will depart from you. And you will be sorrowful. He says, But when I return, ye shall receive joy. And your joy 
no man shall take. Now, some people want to take that and take that to mean, well, when, when Jesus comes back in the rapture, we're going to have joy. But no, 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 no. What he's saying is, I'm getting ready to die for your sins. And where I'm going, just like he told Philip, whither I go, ye cannot go. He's saying, Philip, you can't follow me there. I've got to bear your sins. I've got to do this alone. You're not able. I'm the Son of God. You're a lost sinner. I have to bear your sins. Whither I go, ye cannot go. But he's saying, when I return. Well, when did he return? Well, we're coming up on it. This Palm Sunday, isn't it? There's what the Catholics call Palm Sunday, but we're coming up on it. When he says, when I return, he's saying, when I'm resurrected. When I've come from the grave. When I have returned, glorified, and with grace. He's saying, you're going to receive joy. The world's still going to hate us. I wish I could say that he went from a place of reverence, and then he was in a place of contempt, and now we're in a place where no one's going to ever have contempt towards us. I wish I could say that, brother, but that's not so. That's not so. Christ said that you know that if the world hates you, it hated me first. We're going to be hated of this world. What we get by His grace is not favor and popularity with people. What we get is a joy unspeakable and full of glory. A joy that no man can take from us. Hey, are you miserable this morning? It's because you forfeited that joy. No man took it from you. It's because you gave it up. It's because you've forgotten what all He's accorded you with His grace. It's because you're forgetting all that Christ has done for you. It's because you've allowed sin in your life that's robbed you of your sweet fellowship with the Lord because your joy shall no man take. People say, well, I'd be happier if so-and-so didn't do this or if so-and-so... Hey, your happiness is not dependent upon what anyone else does. It's dependent upon your relationship with Jesus Christ. We see joy. And then I'll give you one last word. As I studied this, and I tried to look at the relationship that takes place between all these. We see Him with His riches, but then we see Him in His condescension. And because we see Him in His condescension, now we are made joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And then I see Him in His reverence. He was at a place where He was lifted up and praised and glorified. And He left that and came to a place where He was hated and abhorred. And because of that, we can have joy. And then I, I, I thought about his righteousness, Brother Ralph. There he was, sinless and spotless. That's what the book of 1 Peter says. With the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without spot or without blemish. He was sinless and perfect. We see his righteousness, but then we see his crucifixion. And there he is, becoming our sin. Becoming our iniquity. It permeates who he is. And he bears the punishment. And what does that bring for us? Well, we're joint heirs. And we've got joy. But I thought about the Word and we sang about it. Oh, we sang about I mean, that, that song, Brother Kerry couldn't have picked a better song. Justified freely through Calvary's love. Oh, what a standing is mine. I thought about the word justified. We're justified. Now, I think sometimes we take the word redemption, reconciliation, justification... Sanctification, all these words, we take them and we make them mean the same thing. And we make them all mean salvation. But understand that all of these different things are facets of salvation. They all occur in a positional sense the moment that we get saved. But they're all different facets. You see, redemption is the idea of the collecting of a purchased thing or the paying of a debt that's owed. Jesus paid our debt on Calvary. 
Reconciliation conveys the idea of two people being reconciled one to another or the obstacle or wedge or contempt between them or disdain or whatever the dispute is being done away with and now they're joined together in fellowship. And the Bible says we are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And I think about the, uh, the idea of, uh, of sanctification. Sanctification means to be set apart or to be purified. And whenever we got saved, that's exactly what God did. Therefore, if any man be in Christ is a new creature, old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. We're set aside and we're made different. And the word justification, what does it mean? It's not just another fancy word for salvation. But to be justified means to be put in the position of the Son of God. When we think about the idea of something being justified, if any of you ever work on, anybody work on the computer, use Microsoft Word, anybody? A few of us. There's a little box up there where you can decide how you want your text to be justified. You can have it be in the center mount, where all the text gravitates towards the center. And then there's what's called left justify and right justify. And what it means is you push all the text to one place, and it's all lined up. Do you know what it means when the sinner is justified? It means he is put in the place that God intended for him to be. You know, God had a desire to be in fellowship with Adam, but Adam can't even know what you and I have in grace. Justified doesn't just mean just as if I'd never sinned. That sounds good, but that's not what it means. Adam did not have justification. You and I, you see, we're, we're not just God's creatures. We're God's children. We're made a new creature, but we are accepted in the Beloved. We are the heirs of God. Literally, whenever God sees us, He sees us in the same standing as His precious Son. He doesn't just see the blood when He sees us. He sees His Son when He sees us. We've been justified. We've been giving something so much greater than just the forgiveness of sins. Do you realize God could have just forgiven our sins? He couldn't, but let's play... Uh, oh, I ain't going to say devil's advocate, Brother Ralph. That sounds awful. But let's, let's, play, uh, let's play Charlie's advocate. That'll work. And uh, He could have forgiven us of our sins, and then that wouldn't have made us a child of God in and of itself. He could have forgiven us of our sins, and that wouldn't have necessarily made us join heirs with Jesus Christ. Just the forgiveness of sins is only one part of what God did for us on Calvary. I mean, He literally took us from the miry clay and set us at the feet of Jesus. He literally took us from the throne of iniquity that Psalms talks about and seats us together, Ephesians says, in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That's what justification is. I don't think we really live up a lot of times to what God did for us when He saved us. That's one of the greatest tragedies about people living out in the world is because they get out and they wall around in the same pig slop that God took them out of, washed them up. Hey, justification is like when David sent down from Mephibosheth. He didn't just cancel his debts. He didn't just forgive him. He brought him out of Lodabar and sat him at the king's table and treated him like one of his own one of his own sons. That's justification. That's grace this morning. Grace is not just, oh, well, I'm forgiven. 
graces. Now I'm a child of God and I'm accepted in the beloved. I've got a covenant relationship with an almighty God. And listen, it's not a covenant like we're used to. It's not a covenant where we keep up our part. He keeps up his part. But it's a covenant like he made with Abraham when he put him to sleep and the Lord passed through with the smoking furnace and the burning lamp. What was the Lord doing? He was entering into a covenant with himself. That way Abraham couldn't break it. Do you understand when God saved you, he entered into a covenant with himself bound by his Word, redeemed by His grace, we are eternally saved through Him. That's grace. And you know the greatest thing about grace is that He didn't have to do any of it to be God. Every bit of it was motivated by love. Grace grace has never been motivated by responsibility. If it was, it would cease to be grace. Grace is never mingled with works. If it is, it ceases to be grace. Grace is the expression of the love of God. You know, the Bible never says God is grace. The Bible says God has grace. The Bible does say God is love. Well, what's grace? The expression of that love and of who He is. That Jesus, though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor. That through His poverty, what's His poverty? Through His sacrifice, through His crucifixion, through His death, that through His poverty, ye might be rich. If you don't know the grace of God this morning, I think it'd be a fine time to come to an altar and let somebody show you from the Word of God how you can come know Christ as your Savior. I think it'd be a fine time to enter into that grace this morning. Isn't it sad that God's done so much for the sinner and still so many die and go to hell? It's so unnecessary. It's so unnecessary. He's died for our sins. If we'll only come to Him, repent and ask forgiveness, then He'll save us.